back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, writers, directors, actors, costume designers, production designers, composers, uh, sound mixers, sound editors, uh, film editors, you name it, and we talk to them. Um, been a busy, busy, busy interview week post-Oscars. Uh, I think people are revving up, trying to get back into some positivity after the train wreck, wreck that was. Um, but here we are. It is the month of May. The United States is opening up. Movie theaters are opening up. Movies are going to be showing up in movie theaters. You've got a lot of films uh, uh on the horizon, the immediate horizon, as a matter of fact, uh, that are opening theater only. They're not doing a theater digital or theater VOD. They're not doing the day and date uh, multi-platforms. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. And there are some goodies, a couple I can't even mention yet um, because they're under uh, such a tight embargo. Uh, but... I'm excited. I hope all of you are. I hope that you will get out there into the theaters and support these films and see films the way they are meant to be seen. And, you know, speaking of the way films are meant to be seen, TCM Film Fest, Classic Film Festival is back virtually this year. Uh, but it starts this Thursday, the 6th of May, uh, and it runs through Sunday. Uh, and of course, let's let's just make mention of happy birthday to our beloved Robert Osborne, who is no longer with us, but who every time TCM Film Festival rolls around, we always take pause and remember Robert. Um, if you're if you are obviously if you're listening to us on AdrenalineRadio.com, welcome, welcome. If you're watching the live stream on the Facebook page for AdrenalineRadio.com. You'll see that I've changed up the tablescape again this week, as I always do. And it is an homage to TCM Film Festival. Unfortunately, they didn't have tote bags this year, even available in the TCM shop online. Um, so I pulled out some TCM mementos of the past, uh, plus a couple little tidbits that I picked up for myself. And a big thank you. Thank you to TCM Film Fest for some really nice little goodies that they sent me as media for the festival. So thank you, thank you, thank you, TCM and TCM Film Fest. But as always, you know, I'm uh, sad that this year, you know, all the girls are not back together for our, our traditional Monday before the fest um, gab session. Uh, Kelly Pratt, Aurora Desmond, Anne-Marie Gotti, um, but next year, we will be, the festival will be live and in person, and we're going to go back to our regular show, with, TCM show, when the girls call in, and we really talk about the festival, and hopefully there'll be a lot of newcomers next year to the festival after having a chance to see it virtually, and uh, we'll be able to give you talk about the films that are being shown and tidbits for getting around Hollywood. So really looking forward to next year, as well as this year, especially opening night of TCM Film Festival. This is something every film goer, every film lover, you don't want to miss out on a cast reunion for West Side Story with the wonderful Rita Moreno. And Rita, of course, if you did watch the Oscars or you've been trolling around on the Internet, Rita is in Steven Spielberg's remake of West Side Story. And in the teaser trailer that was released last week, um, she is singing somewhere. So to get to see her in this film, in this remake, all these years later, is going to be something magical for every moviegoer out there. Um, but before the West Side Story remake comes out, TCM is celebrating West Side Story as the opening night film 
with the cast reunion, a Zoom cast reunion uh, Q&A chit-chat that will be happening on Thursday night. But you can just go to TCM.com. You can get the complete layout of the entire um, lineup for the festival this year. And uh, some great films. And I hope you take advantage of it. You'll be able to watch the festival 24-7 on TCM and also on HBO Max at the TCM Hub on HBO Max. Uh, So... There is my shout-out of love for TCM Film Festival. Happy virtual festing, people, this week. Um, And don't forget, you can go on to Twitter and do TCM Party, hashtag TCM Party, hashtag TCMFF, and everybody can chit-chat amongst themselves and have fun and talk about the films uh, as they're happening virtually. So, now... Today's show, and we already have our first caller on hold. Yes, Pam? Okay. This is an interesting show today. Laughter, tears, and some head scratching. That, that's the only way to describe it. At the midpoint of the show, a director, editor, producer, cinematographer, Brian Morrison, is going to join us to talk about his documentary, Bastards Road. It is a powerful documentary. I highly recommend it. Uh, It is the journey of a former Marine, John Hancock, as he walks 5,800 miles around the United States to reconnect with his former buddies who were with him over in Afghanistan. Um, And this is how his own look at and catharsis for healing himself uh, because as we all know, PTSD and soldiers returning is a crisis. It is something that needs to be addressed. Uh, and this is a really powerful documentary that shows us how one veteran is helping himself and helping others in the meantime. So I can't wait to talk to Brian. But first, we've got Ivo Razo, who's going to talk to us about Reboot Camp which is quirky and fun. And without any further ado, welcome, Ivo, to Behind the Lens. Hi. How are you? I am very, very excited for two reasons. And? To be talking to you. (laughs) And secondly, the movie's coming out finally. And so that's very exciting. Tomorrow, the digital release of Reboot Camp is tomorrow. That is right. And boy, that did is right. you know, I, I call this some great movie juju or, or movie magic here, but Reboot Camp is coming out on the day of all days. May the 4th be with you and Reboot Camp <laughs> tomorrow. So I think that's a good omen for you. I certainly hope so. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> oh my I did not know what to expect with this film Ivo uh, oh my god it is it's funny tongue in cheek there's sarcasm there's parody uh, and your cast is incredible but your real a uh, real standout in this film I have to say it is Chaz Bono Chaz is so much fun to watch as Camper Herb in <laughs> Reboot Camp. Uh, I, I just love it. And, of course, your cast is led by David Lipper, who is always, always a comedic joy. But I think he really comes into his own front and center with this film. Tell everybody what Reboot Camp is about and how you came up with this wacky and fun idea. So, Reboot Camp is, for uh, lack of a better term, a mockumentary. (laughs) And, you know, I'm a big fan of mockumentaries, uh, Spinal Tap and Best in Show and plenty of others. And so it's, it's, it's a film I wanted to, or a film style I wanted to tackle, and this lent itself, this story lent itself to that. And um, the basic premise is that these two brothers, Seymour and Danny, create a fake self-help group so that they can create a, shoot a documentary about it as it happens. 
And of course, as with all Frankenstein style <laughs> projects, the monster <laughs> turns on them, gets a life on its own, and, uh, you know, they get kicked out in the end. And Reboot Camp becomes an actual kind of cultish organization. And of course, all of this is done tongue in cheek, as you said, lots of humor, lots of satire, and um, lots of fun. Oh, it is fun from beginning to end because you essentially have the your a document a documentary style making of a film within a film um, that just explodes with funny, um, and it's your whole the way you tackle this story is so interesting. Um, because you've got the mockumentary format, but I love how we start with the brothers. And, you know, essentially we start with Seymour, David Lipper's character. And he's being interviewed, and you're wondering what the heck is happening, what is going on, and then you back it up for us through his quote-unquote interview recollections. And we go back to the beginning in this great idea And the way you structure this is you keep reminding us that, okay, people are being interviewed about what transpired. So you cut back and forth. Your pacing with that is perfect. I love that. I love that. You don't overload us. You don't top load it. You don't end load it. You really find a comfortable pace with that. And it also gives us sometimes a setup for the jokes that are coming or the absurd situation, or it's a respite from something that just happened. So that works just so well. But the real stars of this, of this mockumentary is you intersperse, you've got, it, it's all actors, but some are playing themselves. Some actors are acting in, as characters, and that's yep. where the fun really comes. As I mentioned at the top, we've got Chaz Bono, who is a delight as Camper Herb. I just, and the fact he let you wrap him in, in you know, saran wrap uh, is hilarious. And he tries to break <laughs> out of it. Um, but then you get somebody like Eric Roberts, who plays Eric Roberts. Yep. And... Uh, it is just so fun watching him. And his wife is in it as well. But then you get Ed Begley Jr. who plays a character, not himself. And he is just so deadpan cynical that it, it yeah. just begs laughter. But, you know, and there, you know, you've got David Ketchner in there. Um, you've got Lindsay Shaw. You've got Shar Jackson. Um, ja Rule is <laughs> in here, Johnny Bananas. I just absolutely outstanding. How did you assemble all of these people? And then in that same vein, because so many of these scenes involve large groups of people to schedule this, to get all of them available. Well, it's, you know, the, the structuring of the film was really done in advance on the script level. And then once we were in the edit um, as well, and I probably I did probably 15 cuts just to get the pacing right wow. and get the balance right, which with this, you know, huge cast, was was quite difficult, and we we left quite a bit on the cutting room floor. Yeah, I can imagine so much great material. Um, the way we cast this, you know, I when I wrote the script, I had sent it to David Lipper, who was a friend for many years, and he read it and was like, "Oh my god, this is fun! I want to do it." And then I um, then we sat down, I and we kind of started like, "Who do we know? Who can we reach out to?" You know, David has um, been part of the Hollywood uh, environment for quite a while. So he had <laughs> yes. a lot of contacts. And then uh, our publicist and co-producer, David Robertson, had some contacts, and I had some contacts, and some of the, you know, like one of our producers, Jim, 
he was the uh, the showrunner for the MTV Real World. So he had all the MTV, you know, Jenny Bananas and Kayla and, and those guys. So so it was a team effort. Um, and what was great about it is when we sent the script to um, potential cast, people got it. People read it and said, oh, yeah, I can totally see myself in this, either as a fictionalized version of myself or as one of the characters. Mm. And how, how we managed to get everybody, and that was, you know, a lot of logistical maneuvering, is we would get, um, for example, David Keckner and Jerul, we had one day. Wow. So I'm like, okay, what are all the things we can do with those guys, right? Mm-hmm. Eric Roberts and Eliza, we had for half a day. So we booked our main location because he was on his way to uh, shoot a TV show in Canada. Of course he was. was even outside of, (laughs) of course he was, outside of principal photography. So we were like, okay, but let's, let's get them in. Let's get them for, you know, like six or eight hours. And, and so we shot a whole bunch of stuff with them even before we started the actual principal production. And so, so we managed it in such a way that we didn't have people commit for 14 days. And and that made it really accessible for everybody, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it may be accessible for everybody, but that had to be hair-pulling for you. I wasn't for me. I was busy with so many other things <laughs> and coming up with insane exercises that all these new un- unscripted cast members had. But uh, it was the team was amazing, the mm-hmm. production team, you know, Tina and Kip and... Jim and everybody who was on it, uh, David, two our uh, two Davids and Kelly, and and they just everybody just pulled hard, and we shot this in two weeks. Wow, it was shot in fourteen days. And that that in and of itself is is amazing, considering the amount of people you have. Um, luckily, you're you're in one location, so that you're pretty much Mostly, contained. Yeah. Um, which who. Cuts down on those setups, man, and getting people from point A to point B. Um, but yeah. the sheer number of people that you're working with, and then the fact that you have, how scripted was this versus non-scripted? And then melding that. Because you've got, you do some great, great takeoff skewering, um, these skewering cults, let's face it. And you yes. really make us laugh. And the self-help, and you go, ooh, and you breathe, and you raise your arms, and you dance around, and you slide through vagina water slides <laughs> into a pool. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's So I'm curious about how scripted versus non-scripted and how you got that to fit so seamlessly. Um, so the entire story was scripted. We had a relatively short script, about 95 pages, mm-hmm. and we shot all of that. Okay. And then, um, you know, both David and I are huge fans of improv, David Lipper, who was the yeah, I, yes. So we said, let's shoot our scenes and get that in the can, but let's build in a little extra time at the right moment and with the right scenes. Just riff. On the, on the theme, you know, once we had all the things we needed to cover. So we did that. And then on top of it, when we got people like David Keckner, Jarul, and um, uh, Billy Morrison, you know, the mm-hmm. guitarist, and uh, they were just kind of, at the last moment, we figured, oh, we can get David Keckner and Jarul. And then we couldn't rewrite now and, and right. change story at that point, 24 hours before they arrive. So we would just say, you know what, Let, let's do some exercises with them that are thematic with the story. Mm-hmm. Let's give them premises. We, we, they read the script as well. They knew what this was all about. And then, you know, at that point, David had lived in the, you know, Gordon character world mm-hmm. for a few days and really, really, you know, owned it to a, such a beautiful degree so that it everything you know i was like hey david here's here's a potential exercise we could try and, and he just ran with it and <laughs> when when you don't put too many constraints but just kind of parameters on yeah on this level of creativity it's 
it's off the charts. People just have fun with it. And anything goes. And, every, you know, I, I told everybody, look, don't worry. If you go too far, if it's too crazy, we'll, we won't use it. You know, if you make political statements or anything like that, just go. Don't, don't curb, curb yourself. Um, and we got amazing, amazing um, footage. And, and then, of course, it was difficult to incorporate all of that later in the editing room because there was so much good stuff, which was off topic, mm-hmm. which was really funny. So that was a tough process, I have to say, um, because you're laughing at, you know, you're watching <laughs> Jerome and David Kecker just be... I- Funny as hell. Jarul and David Koechner are hilarious. Hilarious. Jarul is so funny when he's talking and it's like, see, it's helped me. You see, I can talk so softly and I'm so calm. But yeah, it's, you know, I can get like this. and But then I get so calm. And you're just, and his facial expressiveness is, it just makes it. It is hilarious. Um, yeah. uh, it's, you know, and I'm looking at one performance and another and another, and I know how gifted Keckner is with improv. I know how gifted David Lipper is with improv, but I got to say, David Lipper, um, going between filmmaker Seymour and into the, his character of guru or Sherpa Gordon, uh, with, with the French <laughs> accent, um, you really believe the way this story plays out. You really believe by the time we get deep into that third act that he that Seymour believes he is Sherpa Gordon. Oh yeah, he is. Yeah. David he, is he, so he, convincing with that performance. He brainwashes himself. Yes, I mean, it's, it's amazing. And um, that's one that, of the that's one of the fun things you have happening in here is the way you're viewing the brainwashing that happens without commentary. You're just letting it unfold. And as people are, as you watch the film, you see the humor in it, but you also see the sadness in that, that that really does happen. Um, A lot. A lot. And so it's, you handle that so well without, you. you know, staying away from exposition and just letting it unfold and let the audience just see for themselves and decide for themselves. Are you buying this? I, you know, I've known people that have been in cults and I got, you're spot on here. You are oh, spot, yeah, yeah. You're Me too. spot on. I have, you know, you've got some beautiful because so much of this takes place outside. Um, I got to give kudos to your, to your cinematographer, to, to Derek Cohen, some really pretty, pretty light, visually light, and tonally light lensing. Really nicely done. Yeah, he did, done. A, he did a fantastic job. Real, um, really nice. Because we, we worked also super fast, and so it wasn't an easy, easy thing to shoot. He didn't have the regular, you know, time to set up and light everything. It was kind of like documentary-style shooting to, to keep that energy going versus resetting you know, relighting and all of that. I didn't want any of that. I wanted this to be very organic so that it actually feels like it was shot in the moment. Mm -hmm. And he handled it beautifully. Well, and that plays so well into the whole idea of Sherpa Gordon's philosophy for organic, natural, from within. Um, It just plays into that so that you don't have manufactured shots either. Yeah, totally. Now, uh, uh, something that ties this entire thing together is Eric Schroeder's score, Plus Your Needle Drops. The music is so important here. What were you looking for sonically from a musical, uh, from a musical aspect, from the score and then the needle drops that you have? Um, Eric and I have a very similar sensibility when it comes to instruments. And so he came up with quite a few of these really unique um, kind of the marimba and, mm-hmm. and this 
this special guitar. I forgot what the name is. That uh, so 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 they're they're common but unique instruments that helped tweak the way this um, sounds, and because mm-hmm. the music was supremely important, um, because you 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 need. You know, because it's a comedy, you need those moments to be enhanced by the sound. And I think, I think that was a, you know, the idea was not to do like a back, you know, back-to-back score, right? But, but to really have this track running through and and having fun with it and being playful. And I think it worked. Uh, I have she, to. Eric did a. Great job. I have to agree with you. Um, I love the instrumentation because you're really hearing differentials, cultural differentials, even some genre changes um, through the instrument, instruments that he's selecting at certain moments. And sometimes you get a Far Eastern, you know, Buddhist kind of vibe. Uh, Other times you're getting something more mainstream. But it's very eclectic, and it really serves your characters well, because that's one heck of an eclectic bunch you got there. Um, and it just, it really ties it all together, and I so appreciate that. It's funny that, that you noticed. Yeah, that's uh, exactly the point. We wanted the music to be eclectic because the group is eclectic. <laughs> that could so, be an understatement. Works, we, we, we may need a new word to describe this group. Um, you know, oh, yeah, sure. so often people forget about your the end, your opening and end titles. You use those so well. Your end titles, you're using those essentially as your epilogue, um, which had me in stitches when we have our brothers, Seymour and Danny, going back to the compound after they've been ousted. And there's Camper Herb and... Camper Herb pretends he doesn't even know them, and he has this blank look on his face. And this is where Chad's acting, Chaz's acting ability really stands out because he gets this look of total, I don't know who the hell you are. And yeah, Chaz is amazing. It yep. plays so well. But you use your opening, uh, your opening titles to identify your players, who they are. Um, be it actor, be it their character, and then you wrap it all up similarly in the end. It's a beautiful bookend, and I love you didn't waste exposition on telling us things. You wrap it all together, so it works. And it actually gives you more storytelling time. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, the title, it's, it's something we wanted to make every single part of this film film. Chapters, I mean, the chapters, um, you know, as the story progresses and the material they cover, they change too. And then that's kind of a fun little element because, it's like, hey, yeah, this is what this is really about, you know? <laughs> yeah, and I, I always appreciate touches like that. And here again, it works. You know, it, it's a nice, it's a nice element to the complete tonal structure. Um, and you just in, you incorporate it so well. The whole thing, it is just well, so much fun. I've always, so much fun. Glad you enjoyed it. Ah, well, unfortunately, I must say goodbye to you and move on to a very sobering film. Um, but oh everybody can see Reboot Camp digitally starting tomorrow. And you can get more information at RebootCampFilm.com, correct? That is correct. And are you working on another film yet? Uh, yes, I'm uh, working on finishing a screenplay or rewriting a screenplay for the next film we want to make. Ooh. So, Will it be a mockumentary? Yeah. I don't know yet. It'll uh-huh. have mockumentary elements for sure, but I'm thinking more Itania style. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, yeah. So we'll see. But okay. Still fun satire, satire, same genre. In this. I gotta see it when it's done. Uh, okay, then. Let you know. It's going on the bucket list. Oh, Ivo, thank you so so much, and I hope you'll come back on the show again. 
Thank you very much for having me and talking about this film. And we'll be happy to be back. Oh, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Take care. I'm Arazzo, Talking Reboot Camp. Available tomorrow, May 4th, digitally. And now we're shifting gears into, into sobriety with a very powerful and important film. Welcome, Brian Morrison. Hello, Debbie. How are you? Very well. Thank you for having me. I am thrilled to have you on to talk about Bastards Road. This is one of those documentaries that everybody needs to see. Uh, it is. It provides so much insight. And it really does justice to our veterans, to our veterans suffering with PTSD. Um, I think the only other documentary that I have seen that even comes com- can be compared to this one would be Rick Waugh's uh, That Which I Love Destroys Me, which focused on two veterans and specifically on PTSD and their acclimation or non-acclimation back into the society after after leaving um you've done an incredible job with this one absolutely incredible brian um where do you even start i know that john hancock former marine veteran he's back from afghanistan iraq and he's got as most of most of our soldiers do has PTSD, he's got to deal with things within him. And as he poignantly points out in the documentary, you know, and some of the, of his, of his brothers in arms also point out, you go to the VA and they want to give you pills. They don't want to give you help. Uh, And that's something that, that our VA system is supposedly working on to change. But John takes it upon himself to embark on this trek 5,800 miles around the U.S. to reconnect with all of his surviving brothers in arms and to pay honor to those lost in battle. Um, You didn't even find out about this until he was about 1,500 miles in. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you guys knew each other in high school or you went to the same high school. Um, yeah, we sh- we shared a lot of mutual friends from high school. That's how I figured out what he was doing. You know, and you hear something like this. If this were me and it was somebody I had gone to high school with, and it's like, number one, it's, are they are they nuts? Who in the world is going to embark on a 5,800-mile journey on foot? Um, but then it's, why? I'd want to know more. And clearly, you wanted to know more. Yeah, I he started popping up on a lot of local news specials and newspaper articles that were shared online by our mutual friends and it yeah, it wasn't enough for me. There I, I just I felt like I wanted to unravel the onion as as it were and yeah, I was just struck by how visual well, you know, I'm a filmmaker, I think visually. I kind of imagine him embarking on this psychological warfare throughout the country with amongst the beautiful landscapes and trying to reconnect with the country that you fought for, but also really facing the demons that that you came home with and how Mm -hmm. courageous that was. So yeah, I, I was immediately struck by what he was doing and that link through mutual friends was kind of the way in. I came to find out that my next door neighbor was his closest best friend growing up. Wow. Which, yeah, we started talking a lot. So how did you make, how did you initially make contact with John and then broach this idea of, Hey, I have an idea. Maybe make this a documentary. Maybe capture this. Was it was it just capture some snippets at first, document part of this, or did you have the big picture documentary in your mind when you finally got to talk to John? Yeah, I had thought about it being a longer form big piece. I thought that that's probably what 
this type of story required. It, 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 it couldn't be condensed into some two, three minute short piece. So I was always kind of thinking a larger thing, but John and I didn't know each other. So we had to feel each other out. Dave Parks was my neighbor, John's best friend who kind of put us in contact with each other. And so John was using his phone while he was walking. He would check in with friends and family just to make sure that they knew he was, he was alive. He was doing well. He was kind of doing some video journals of kind of the funny things that he would encounter on the road. I had reached out and it was just kind of me sharing a little bit about who I was and not just what I was trying to do with a film, but trying to find if we were going to connect well together and I think when you're doing a documentary subject, especially one that was more of a portrait piece about one person, Mm -hmm. you know, we really needed a jive and we needed to feel each other out. And John was able to come home for a VA appointment um, that he couldn't miss. His parents live less than a, a mile from my house. Oh, wow. So we were able to talk and do a little interview and we felt like okay this is something that we can keep going so once he got back out on the road we talked about what was going to be a decent time for me to come out and and share a few days with him and yeah it kind of started from there how do you as a filmmaker because locations are all over the united states he walked 5800 miles you didn't show up until you know what, 4,300 miles? <laughs> you got yeah. 4,300 more to target. go. You know, how do you as a <laughs> filmmaker even wrap your head around this from a logistic standpoint? Now, I know you were shooting yourself. You've also got footage in there that John was self-shooting on his, his cell phone. Um, you also cut this. You were editor on this. Where do you as a filmmaker, once you decide the two of you jive, how do you then break this down to go on this the rest of this journey? Yeah. The logistics were when do I have an opportunity of time? It was it was fluid. I mean, it was John was like you said was already on his road and there was a part of me that didn't know exactly when it was going to end. Was it going to last another 8 months which yeah. it did or was something going to happen? You know, he was really subject to a lot of threats, whether it was from nature or whether it was from getting hit by a truck or a car. I mean, I just felt like I had to jump into it right away. Mm-hmm. And so he, I would find an opportunity of time. I would fly into the closest airport and he would send me a GPS pin of where he was at. And I stuffed as much camera gear into a rental car and I'd track him down on the side of the road with oh his GPS God. pin. And within five, ten miles of that pin, I would get to him. He would be out in the middle of nowhere. I'd jump out, and, and we would just start. Well, you know, the footage that you have, and I have to say, your footage depicting the, uni- the beauty of the United States is stunning, Brian. It is stunning. And what I find the most powerful in this documentary are your long shots of John alone with the mountains behind him, not a car in sight along the road, (laughs) just mother nature. But you see a man with his head down, plowing forward, just very um, contemplative, introspective, determined. And it's in that, those moments that you really get a sense of the power of this documentary and the overwhelming emotion that he must have that he is trying to cathartically excise from his soul. And that really comes across with the beauty of nature, the solitude of nature, and this one lone man uh, and I can't commend you enough for those images. Just absolutely outstanding. Well, thank you. That was very well put. In, you know, the juxtaposition of the natural beauty of some of these areas that he was going through mixed with what he's suffering from 
internally. You know, it's a, this beautiful mountain range. It's this gorgeous sunset, but he's out there struggling. And, you know, it's, it's eye candy for us, but I think that that was part of um, the allure from me is despite the, the beauty of that, he is, I mean, it's rugged out there. Yeah. He is, he is struggling and it, the bravery that it, t- that, it, that it took for him to go out into these very isolated areas and to do the hard work of holding yourself accountable for the things that you've done to rehash old memories, traumas, war, you know, these guys come home from war and, and there, there are, you know, definite challenges and struggles. And, and John, you know, had, had a difficult time coming home. And I think that you struggle with the things that you did overseas, but then you create new difficulties and new challenges because you aren't having an easy time coming back home. You know, whether it's a relationship with a spouse, a girlfriend, or, you know, whoever your friends and families are. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, John's, you know, holding himself or, or really digging deep into all those memories on the road. I, I, I think particularly for me, where it kind of changed was when I was allowed to come into the homes of one of his Marine brothers. Because, okay, me and John developed a relationship and that was wonderful and great, but you know, they're his marine brothers that I don't know. Yeah, so I was going to ask was, you about that. Yeah, it's a whole other relationship. <laughs> you know that because that can you know upset your the idea of your apple cart is oh my god, what if they don't want a camera around? What if they don't want me around? What if they're looking at me, you know, as an outsider? Because knowing so myself, knowing so many veterans. Um, even going all the way back to Vietnam, um, you know, some of these guys, it's just, no, you don't, nobody can enter that safe space. So I, yeah, I can just imagine. Just a personal reunion, too. I mean, in some cases, yeah. John hadn't seen this guy since they got out. Yeah, and, this, and I felt I had a lot of anxiety of coming in and ruining this, this very personal and heartfelt reunion. With this being this guy with the camera, yeah, because that's something else that struck me is because when you're in serving and when you're in combat, it's the group of you. Each person has each other's back. You know, mm-hmm. you are functioning as one, looking out for one another. Then he's out on the road alone. Nobody has his back anymore. It's just him. So it you know that juxtaposition is also quite interesting to see that visualized here um, yeah I think in a sense that that isolation or those periods of isolation and, his, and walking it's like these gaps of walking to and away from his marine brothers and the families of their falling and, and John reaching out for them and that support network that is really difficult to maintain when you get out. Yeah. And I think that this really illustrates in, in, in a very direct way of, you know, we live in a big country and, you know, these guys that, you know, develop these bonds that are, are stronger than any relationships that I've seen. Yep. You know, it's just the practic- practicality of a big country. It's like these guys are separated between thousands of miles. It's challenging. You can't just get in your car and drive a couple hours yeah. once a week to reconnect to those people that, you know, you really need to stay in contact with. And so I think when I saw their allowance of me to enter that world as being this stranger, as uh, holding the camera, I mean, that really solidified or at least very early on established this sense of trust and faith in their community they have amongst each other of John saying, hey, I've got this guy. He has a camera. He's following me. And then saying, like, uh, is he OK? Does mm-hmm. he, you know, is he on the level? And John just saying, yes, he's, he's there. And then just taking his word for it. 
I mean, that was incredible. Nothing I did. It was really everything coming from John and, and those, um, and that brotherhood and that trust that they have in each other that made all this happen. And of course, then when he says, yes, he's, he's okay. Then you are now probably sweating bullets. It's like, I cannot screw this up. I cannot screw this up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of anxiety too, of what do I say in response to somebody that is going to a very, um, personal and guarded mm-hmm. memory, a traumatic thing yeah. that's happened, whether they inadvertently killed a kid in a firefight like John or they killed an enemy combatant. You know, what do I say as a civilian that has no kind of bearing on what that's like, either from a close family member or personally? And, you know, the more that I talk to these guys, the more I found a sense of calmness and that I don't have to say the perfect thing in response. You know, just mm-hmm. me being there, being emotionally present and and just willing to be where, whatever they need me to be in that moment. It's just if just an open ear is is very powerful and and, and as supportive of, of, of them and, and whatever they need. I mean, I, I I gained a lot from that experience and knowing just how much the power of an open ear can be. Mm hmm. Well, something that you do that I I noticed with Bastards Road is you don't have talking heads. The only people, quote-unquote, interviews you have are with fellow Marines. You have the one therapist, but he is a former Marine and served with them. So he's not an outsider coming in. You have avoided the talking head scenario that we so often see of, well, you know, this is what's going on and this is what should be happening. And, well, this is the kind of treatment that they need and blah, blah, blah. You stay away from that. You stay away from politics. And above that, this is very objective. You don't inject your voice in here. The only the only way we see your voice is through the editing, through the visuals. But here again, it's objective. It's observational. And I really like that. Yeah, I'm happy you you mentioned that because it was something that I didn't feel as qualified to be that voice. And even for the people that may be qualified, whether it's a mental health professional somebody within the VA, mm-hmm. it just didn't feel like that insertion was, was not, I don't want to say necessary, but this needed to be about John and, and mm-hmm. the people that he was connected to first. And if I come in here and utilize a mental health professional here, it's like, I think we're losing grasp of, look, we're just trying to gain a context here. And that trust that, was given to me to mm. enter their world. I just wanted to share that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you did a beautiful, beautiful job of that. You know, from a filmmaking standpoint, point, Brian, when did you start your editing process? And, you know, how much footage between what John had on his cell phone, what he had shot, what you shot, how much did you have to weed through? Did you wait until after... He arrived at Camp Pendleton. Were you editing along the way? Talk me through your editing process here. So I had a partner in crime. Mark Stafford was uh, the the guy that I would send back the footage for. And he would watch it, you know, once over and then watch it again. And we would kind of collect notes and thoughts about each trip that I was able to you know, make out with John, you know, what were some mm-hmm. of the things that we w- we could build around or what were some of the things that we felt were important to connect to in, in some of the other trips. It was a process. It, 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 so the editing kind of happened right away as, as, as we're kind of identifying um, things from the different interviews. And, and, and it was a lot, but we, early on, we knew that John was that, that tree, that main, you know, kind of force to kind of branch out from Mm -hmm. and that we could share other stories from John. But as long as we kept 
it coming back to John, that was, that was our main kind of focus. So, you know, through the process, it, you know, we sometimes strayed too far away from John, but then we have to pull ourselves back. Um, that was part of the ebb and flow of, of the narrative. And, you know, being that I was capturing so much of the footage and I assumed the editing role, I, I tried to keep as much objectivity that I could by keeping John involved and looking at some earlier cuts by having some of my friends that have veteran, uh, that are veterans themselves, mm -hmm. have them kind of take a look at it. So I just leaned on some feedback from, from peers to, to kind of keep the narrative kind of contained, not too sprawling. Mm -hmm. we, there was one point, there was a three hour cut. Oh we God. <laughs> destroyed about two thirds of it and then added almost a half hour of new stuff. Oh, wow. Lot wow. changes. How long was the editing process? The editing probably was about two and a half years. Uh. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, it was a, it was a while. We, but because we restarted while we were shooting, we were doing different things. We were, you know, as most documentary filmmakers can probably attest to is, you know, we were kind of waiting for the journey to conclude in a way. Like we, we had an experience down and on a Memorial day where we shared this longer cut with uh, one of the families of their fallen Nina Shreg. And we showed it to John, their family and, and a bunch of the other Marines from two, four. And we brought our video equipment down. We kind of always thought that maybe there's an opportunity for us to get more interviews, even though we're kind of showing the film as it's done. But when they watched it, it wasn't right away. It was like a day later, day after, some of the guys had come up and expressed interest into sharing what they had seen and being included as, as a voice. And that changed a lot. Wow. That changed a lot in the film. Those almost sh sharing the film changed it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was a, it was a very moving experience to kind of, be with them and to hear their thoughts from it before it was done. It was, it was very organic in that way. Mm -hmm. Well, something that you do that, that uh, is lovely to see talking about the beauty of the United States um, and the solitary parts of John, the solitary nature of John's journey, your montages, you put together some beautiful montages. I know people are probably thinking, Oh my God, a guy is walking. And he's walking, and he's walking. He's like Forrest Gump running until he stops. Um, this is not just a guy talking into a camera and walking. You really structure this so that you've got beautiful visual montages, and then you have just a lovely, lovely undercurrent of a score by Jeremy Griffith. Yeah, so this becomes very cinematic, Brian. Um, this is a very this documentary is extremely cinematic. How important was it to you to structure everything to put those montages together uh, to highlight? Use those also as transitions uh, to show the passage of day, night, and then bring this scoring in. I came from a music video background. I didn't have a lot of experience with long form video work like documentaries. So I kind of leaned on some of my past experience and it kind of just came out uh, in a sense of the pieces that I was collecting lended itself more to chopping it up a little bit mm -hmm. and not just letting, I, I, maybe there's some moments where I kind of moved the camera a little bit too much or searching for that perfect angle um, it just kind of comes back to a little bit of my background and what, what I did beforehand. And Jeremy, uh, of course, like just provided this perfect platform for extending moments into more montage moments to see more, to feel more. Mm -hmm. I mean, he just really cut into the heart of the film in, in a way that it's hard to communicate of like, 
between Jeremy and I is like, okay, what are you feeling here? And he, I would, sh- I would share with him a few of my thoughts about where John's head was around this time in the film and just share conversations that maybe weren't included in the film. Mm-hmm. And just, it, it kind of just gave him a runway to take off. And then I would adapt the, the visuals to accommodate where he kind of had, had kind of traveled, where he went, what he was inspired by. Jeremy had a close friend of his that, um, that was, that was, that was killed overseas. And so he had a deep connection to uh, the military and this, this yearning to understand more about the culture and being affected by, um, by honoring what these guys struggle with overseas and when they come home. So I think that, I mean, he was just totally committed and having a partner in crime like that was just, I mean, so much. The scoring is exquisite. And then you punctuate that with some amazing needle drops. The, the actual songs that you have in here, we're talking powerhouses, emotional powerhouses. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that that was all uh, Luke, Dan, and Mike created a, you know, I used a little bit of temporary music when I kind of recognized, like, okay, I think we need a, a, a montage here, or I think we need to really show a lot more than I can provide if we just drag this out. I think it needs to be more, you know, you get the sense of time, and you get the sense of, of distance, and they they were guys that I had um, known for a little while, Dan and Mike particularly. And, and, and in a similar fashion as Jeremy, we, we talked about the film. We talked about John. And when they started writing, I mean, that was just a, an amazing experience to watch those kind of creatives from a songwriting perspective come in and, and create a piece of music that just totally brought the film to a new height, mm-hmm. a, a new like place of resonance where they they wrote they wrote words being yeah. inspired directly from John. And you can try all you want to try and find the perfect piece of music that means the right thing, but when it is an organic process like that, when they're reacting to what they see and they're writing off of that, I, I just uh, it, it was creatively it was so rewarding and to see them I mean, there wasn't much back and forth in that process. They just nailed it right away, and I was, I was floored by it. Well, I, I can't compliment them enough on each one of those tracks. They are they're powerhouses, emotional powerhouses, and uh, I love hearing that they are organic and based on John because they speak so directly to John at, and where you have them placed. John at that moment um, in time. So just so well done. So well done, Brian. Um, yeah, yeah. It was great timing for, for them to kind of step in. I wish I had incorporated them earlier for the music, but when they saw the film in that state, I think that they, we didn't really have to talk as much as they just, heard from John through early cuts of the film and they were just on that level. Wow. They were inspired by him in, in a similar way that I was. You know, unfortunately, we're almost out of time here, but I've got to ask you before we go, you know, what did you, because this is, this was such a cathartic experience for John and for so many other veterans. And, of course, John has now started the BastardsRoadProject.org um, for veterans. Um, but I'm curious, what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker in the process of making Bastards Road? Because this is making a documentary like this, a film like this, so personal and a portrait of a man. Um is not a run-of-the-mill kind of filmmaking experience. So I'm curious what you learned about yourself as a filmmaker. Yeah, it, I think this goes back to a little bit of 
when I was mentoring the anxiety that I experienced talking to, to people that were, were sharing a very tragic moment, a very deeply personal um, thing that, that they, and, and having this anxiety from me of what do I say in response? How do I comfort? How to console? How do I help heal? But I don't, Necessarily, I think the calmness that I found in just being an open ear and not having that right thing to say and just being present for them was was changed my life forever. It was something that was informed by talking because of the documentary filming. Mm-hmm. But I think it was being present for them and going where they needed to go and just being again, present and along for the ride. And in that way, I feel like I've grown so much as a filmmaker, but also as, as a person. And, and um, I'm so grateful for John and, and for his brothers and the families in this film for, for being there with me, allowing them to, um, allowing me to come into their homes. Mm. Well, I'm so glad that you made this documentary. And as I said, it, this is a documentary that all Americans should see. Um, and they can see it May 11th. It's yes, on they can. iTunes and all the digital platforms. <laughs> yeah, it's, we're right up on that, uh, that date. We're almost a week away. A week away next Friday. Everybody has a yeah. chance to see Bastards Road. Oh, Brian, I can't thank you enough. This has been a, a privilege to get to talk to you about this documentary. Uh, I can't Debbie, wait. Thank you so much. I can't wait to see what you do next. Yeah, I, 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 I'm just so excited for the release of the film. It's, uh, it's taught me a lot, so I'll be interested in what I do next as well. But this is, uh, this is an incredibly uh, gracious thing to be able to share the film with you and um and your audience and i can't wait to share it with everybody in in a week i know i know oh brian thank you and, and you got an open invitation come back on the show anytime thank you debbie thanks brian bye-bye take care all right bye-bye and that was brian morrison talking about the documentary bastards road you can get it may 11th and tomorrow May the 4th be with you, and you can also see Reboot Camp tomorrow. I do want to give, and of course, TCM Film Festival starts on Thursday on TCM and on HBO Max at the TCM Hub. But I want to give, I have to give you guys fair warning and a big thumbs up. MTV Entertainment, it's on MTV, commercial free, this coming Friday, Saturday, May 8th. Pink Skies Ahead. This is a wonderful film written and directed by Kelly Oxford. It is her first film. Kelly is an author and it's based on her own experiences when she had to come face to face with the fact that she suffered from anxiety disorder. Uh, It stars Jessica Barden and of course Lewis Pullman. Uh, and so many others. You've got Marsha Gay Harden. You've got Henry Winkler, Mary J. Blige, Michael McKeon, uh, Rosa Salazar, and Odea Rush. It is, I can't recommend it highly enough. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll laugh some more, uh, you'll cry a little bit more, and then you'll, your heart will smile by the end of this. Um, Saturday on MTV, Pink Skies Ahead. And if all goes well and I can edit out all, all of the bad words that Lewis and I said in our interview yesterday, uh, <laughs> you'll get to hear my interview with Lewis, Jessica, and Kelly next week on the show. Uh, and we've got more live guests. So, until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Behind the Lens.